Hi, I'm Jeff Scoop, and uh, this is my co-host, Acacia Dietz, and welcome to Beyond Barriers. And uh, our guest tonight on the program is uh, Mr. Kerry Noble. Kerry, how are you doing? I'm good, sir. Thanks. Thank you so much you. for joining us. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, Kerry, uh, we'd, uh, we'd definitely like to hear it. Well, what I'm, I guess, more famous for is... Uh, in 1977, my wife and I moved to a rural community church up in northern Arkansas uh, from Dallas. Uh, we had one child at the time. My wife was pregnant with our second child, and we had uh, some friends up there, and that's really why we went up there was to visit them and also to have our uh, second child by natural childbirth, which they did up there. We ended up liking it, uh, in fact, loving it. It was, it was a great area, and we ended up moving there just a couple of weeks after we had the baby. Um, in those days, it was a very pacifistic, uh, non-violent, non-racist organization. Uh, we were an apocalyptic group, which meant that uh, we were based on the precept that uh, waiting for Jesus to come back on the second coming and sort of just preparing for that. Uh, whenever it happened, we weren't seeing any dates or anything at that point. Uh, and the first year was very good. It was it was the best experience of my life. Um, but then, you know, how it goes, you meet the wrong people at the wrong time and things start to change. 1978, uh, we were introduced to a guy who said that what we were doing was great, preparing for the last days. And uh, we were going to help people that came out of the cities during whatever was going to happen. Uh, but how are we going to protect ourselves? And he introduces to the concept of uh, weaponizing and, and defending ourselves. So we decided, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we spent $52,000 on guns, ammunition, military equipment over the next 18 months. Uh, we got very prepared. Uh, we started training, became known as survivalists in those days, and uh, ended up being the what was known as the number one civilian SWAT team in the United States. Year after that, we were introduced to the identity, uh, Christian identity, the uh, racist religion of the right. It took us about six months to sort through that uh, before we adapted into our own theology. Uh, but at that point, now we were known as uh, racist, paramilitary, survivalist. Um, then from there, it just got worse. Uh, by See, and then in January 1981, we changed our name from the church name that we had to the political uh, arm of, of our church. Uh, we became known as CSA, the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord. Uh, started having a lot of media publicity. Uh, the word started spreading about us. We had already built a training ground, a four-block uh, mock town called Silhouette City. So we started training people around the country. 1982, we had a, our first national convocation where we had members of the leaders from other right-wing group, groups uh, come down and, and spend the week with us. Um, and then everything progressed. And in 1983, Gordon Call, who was a tax protester up in, in the Dakotas, uh, killed a couple of U.S. Marshals and fled was discovered down in Arkansas, not too far from us, um, and was killed in a shootout. Uh, that sort of accelerated everything. Uh, we made plans for retribution. 1983, we uh, planned the bombing for the Murrah building, the Oklahoma 
the city federal apartment building. Uh, that fell through. We had assassination plans for killing a uh, federal judge, a federal prosecutor, and FBI agent. Those plans fell through also while we were on our way over there. And uh, for a while, we stepped out uh, from the movement, just kind of touching base to see where we were headed. Uh, the leader of the group and I became uh, sort of opposite ends of a particular uh, thing that was going on. And uh, in June of 1984, in order to make amends with the leader of the group, I volunteered as a, on a mission to uh, go around a gay park in Kansas City, uh, kill some whoever was walking around, and uh, then set a bomb up in a, a adult bookstore. Both of those plans uh, fell through. Uh, so the, while I and my uh, the guy that was with me spent the night um, to see what uh, we felt like God wanted us to do, the next morning on a Sunday morning, we went to his old church, which was no longer his church. It was a Metropolitan Community Church. We figured this is what the Lord wanted us to do. So we took a bomb of a briefcase with C4 and explosive and a timer in there. Uh, as time went on, I knew we'd have to sit there for a little bit, but as time went on, um, I started to put a you know face on the on the enemy, started looking around and realized that uh, my action was not going to start the what we would call in those days the Second American Revolution. That all that would happen was either I would end up dying in a uh, shootout, uh, spend the rest of my life in prison, or on death row. Um, then as the uh, gays and lesbians in, the, in that church started to worship in their music, uh, then I no longer saw them as uh, homosexuals, but as fellow Christians trying to find their place in God, just like I was in those days. So I knew I couldn't kill Christians, so I uh, took the briefcase and both of us walked out. And, uh, that put me at odds even more with the leader of the group. And then, in well, if, you, if you don't mind, can I, if I can, if sure. I can ask on that. Um, so, just to back it up a little bit, so you were going, you were actually attending the church at this point, where where you had uh, and walked in there with the briefcase with a bomb in it. Yeah, the the church service, uh, you know, because we went in there and they just assumed we were two gay men coming in. Uh, this was on a Sunday morning, so there was a, a church service going on, and we stayed about half an hour. So, yeah, I mean, it would have been at that in that time period, it would have been the largest uh, United States uh, domestic terrorist act in U.S. history. Uh, about 60, 70 people in there. So all I had to do was set the timer, it, uh, you know, walk out about 10 minutes, it would have leveled the place. Wow. So what so just for our listeners um and and i'm to back it up a little bit because i I know i i kind of just pushed right into the story but um so kerry noble is a former extremist he was involved with the csa which is a christian identity organization and um kerry this is so specifically so you had went into the church you had a bomb ready to go and at this point you had you had changed your mind in, in while you were in during in the service and uh, so how did how how did you come to that point that uh well you know obviously when when we first went in there uh you know you had the guys on pretty much uh, one side of the 
congregation, women on the other side. They were not real affectionate, you know, but there was some like, you know, kissing on the cheek or arms around each other, that kind of thing. Uh, not what I was expecting. You know, we had the propaganda, the gay church, which had sexual orgies going on or something like that. Uh, the uh, pastor came out and started talking about his sexual relations with the music director, both males, of course. And, uh, you yeah, know, so that seemed to solidify this is what we ought to do. Uh, the longer I sat there, like I said, I started putting the face on the enemy, which you're not supposed to do, obviously. Uh, started seeing them as people as opposed to the caricatures um, of what I had expected, you know, third eye in the middle of the forehead or whatever, you know, just, it was not, you know, these look normal. And I started realizing that, you know, these people have never done anything to me. Uh, I hadn't been around homosexuals before, didn't really just couldn't identify with them at all. But for the first time in my life, I started just realizing these people were just like me. And then when the music started, of course, music for us at, at uh, CSA at our, at our compound was very instrumental for us. You know, we had church services four nights a week, basically. Um, so once the music started and I saw people, uh, you know, lift their heads up towards the ceiling and praying or lifting their hands up and singing, um, which was a lot of what we did too. Then it hit me that what they're doing is just trying to be accepted by everybody else, find out what God wants them to do. Uh, and like I said before, just find their place in God. And it just really hit me that that's what I was trying to do. Uh, so it was an overwhelming experience. Uh, and for the first time, I just didn't see them as homosexuals anymore. They weren't gays and lesbians. They were people who followed Jesus and just wanted to live a Christian life in the best way they understood how. Wow. So basically, I mean, this is this is a common theme that we're hearing from a lot of people and, and even in our own trajectories coming out of the coming out of the movement is seeing being able to see the humanity of the so-called other of the of the ones that we vilified of those people yeah. that we thought were the enemy and it sounds like your your story is exactly the same and and you were literally minutes away from you know committing one of the biggest terrorist acts that the country had ever seen it's just incredible that so um it, it sounds to me like religion in in this case your your religion radicalized you or you were it was used to radicalize you but at the same time before something terrible was going to happen um the religion also saved you and and the people I'll, I'll let you you explain it but that's where I, that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing yeah I mean, I mean basically I was already a Christian before I moved up to Arkansas uh I was actually a preacher uh got ordained up there I was the main Bible teacher did half the preaching at least. Um, you know, so I'd been involved with ministry uh, since I'd been 19 years old. I grew up in the church, everything. Uh, what happened with us, when I was growing up in the, in, in the 1960s, we had the race riots in those days, a lot of uh, uh, disunity in the country, pretty much like today. And uh, I could remember as a Southern Baptist kid, asking my Sunday school teachers, what does the Bible say about race? And 
they would not talk about it. Uh, when I was introduced to Christian identity, now here was a group of people who not only were not afraid to talk about race, but wanted to talk about race and bringing in scriptures that I recognized and understood, but kind of at a different angle, different point of view. And uh, it took us a little while, like I said, about six months to sort, kind of sort through it all. Um, but eventually we reconciled with it. And by reconciled, I mean we accepted it to a certain degree. Jim, the leader of our group, uh, and I were both raised in the churches. But as you said, when you if you don't know a group of people, it's easier to uh, believe the, the stereotypes and the propaganda. The you know, when it came to being the anti-Jewish aspect of it, I had never known any Jews, never been around Jewish people or never gone to a synagogue. So I didn't uh, understand that part. Uh, so that was easier to stereotype. Uh, same thing with gays and lesbians. Blacks, I had a, more of a trouble with because I had, had black friends before I moved up to Arkansas that I used to work with. So characterizing them in terms of Christian identity was a little bit more difficult for me. So that I kind of put it back um, back in my mind. Um, but the, you know, in those days, um, you know, this was the late '70s, so it hadn't been very long ago since prayer was uh, banished from school, since abortion started. So we saw a lot of things in society that we did not like, and that seemed to point even more to the last days that we were preparing for. Pretty much like you have now, you know. There's a lot of religious preachers out there who strongly believe that we are in the last days and are willing to do whatever it takes to kind of usher in the kingdom and, and get Jesus back here as quick as possible, even to the point of being willing to go into uh, some sort of a apocalypse. And that's what makes it you know, that much more dangerous. So what would you say to like uh, young people or, or people that are getting involved in this? And I know I understand Christian identity. I, I'm familiar with Aryan nations and, and uh, a lot of that. Um, I, I, the CSA was before my time, but I, I certainly have a, a fairly good knowledge of uh, Christian identity. And I, and I understand how it's uh, utilized and, and everything. So what would you what would your message be to, to as somebody that just about you just about ended your life and, and the rest? And, and many others um, going down this trajectory and this path. And, and as we know, it's just, it's a, it's an endless path of destruction, the, the movement. I mean, what would you, what would your message be to young people that are looking into this, that are kind of on the fence and, and going well, or, or maybe that are already in the movement that are, that are considering, you know, leaving what, what would your message be to them? What I've told people in the movement uh, for several years now is if you stay in the movement, uh, you're, there's no such thing as being stagnant in the movement. You can't stay in one spot. So you're going to have to either get out or go more extremist. If you go more extremist, then you're looking at two paths. Uh, you're either going to go to prison uh, for a short period of time or a long period of time, depending upon what you do, which means that you could end up dying in prison. Or you'll die in some sort of a shootout with the cops. Uh, either way is not pleasant to look at. So if you're in the movement and you understand the ramifications of what you're doing and the possible uh, roads that you're going down of what could happen to you, 
then you need to kind of step back just for a second and ask yourself, is this what I really want? Why, first of all, am I doing this? And I have found that people in the movement got involved because there's something in their lives they're not happy with. They're not content. They're uh, angry with their lives. They're upset for some reason, and they want somebody to blame. Uh, one thing I discovered in the movement was, first of all, and I was a recruiter for our group, uh, I'd find something that you were unhappy with, and that would be the hot button. And I'd push it as much as I could. And then I'd tell you who's to blame for it. You take away the personal responsibility, first of all. It's not your fault what's going on in your life. It's the fault of blacks, Jews, Mexicans, gays and homosexuals, the government. It didn't matter to us who you wanted to blame. My job as a recruiter was to find out uh, your hot button and then point you in the direction of blame. So, you know, and that purpose was to get you more and more angry at something or somebody. Once I could do that, then you're in. So if you're in the movement, the first thing that you got to do is step back and say, okay, why am I angry? What's wrong with my life? Why do I feel out of control over my life? And then ask yourself, seriously, is there something I can do to prevent what's going on? Are there steps that I can take or is there some, somewhere where I can go for help? Uh, oftentimes, of course, when, once you're in the movement, the only stuff that you hear is from other people or other groups that are in the movement. You've stopped listening to the other side because they're considered a betrayal. So if you can start to listen to think to people or organizations on the other side so that you can have a little bit of balance, uh, that's essential. You've got to question what's going on and then look at the leadership. Are they what they proclaim to be? Are they are their lives what they proclaim to be? Or are they simply in it for the money, which some of them are? Are they in it for the ego and the glory, which some of them are? And are they manipulating you to where you do the illegal acts and they sit back and just call the shots, which is usually the case. So you've got to question the motives. Uh, once you kind of start doing that, I have found that people will start to crack a little bit. And, you know, I can get them to think. A little bit because there's a certain point, as y'all know, once you're in the movement, there's a turnoff point to where you turn off all the logical thinking, all the critical thinking, and you just accept everything that you're told. And that's at that point, you're pretty much of a zombie. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that because um, I know Jeff has mentioned it before about how it's like open mindedness brought us into the movement. And open mindedness, open mindedness is what will bring you out of it. Because right. you know, once you're in that echo chamber and that bubble, you become very closed minded because that's that's the truth. That's all, the only yeah. truth there is. And like yeah. you said, you know, once you start allowing yourself to question that, you start realizing that wait a minute, there is more than what's in this echo chamber. So yeah, you become really very very narrow minded, very focused. Uh, to where you can't see, you know, it's like the horse with the blinders and you can't see past the blinders. Uh, at some point, you've got to move the blinders some. Now, it could be maybe you're questioning something. Maybe you're seeing something. Maybe you're wondering um, what's going to happen to you. Maybe you begin to get concerned about your own family. If you're married and you've got children, what's going to happen to them if I continue down this road? There's a number of scenarios that could end up just at least 
putting the seeds of doubt in your mind about where you're going and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to listen to those. Even if you're afraid to, uh, scared of any kind of consequences, you've got to consider that you're having these thoughts because something inside you is telling you, telling you that you're on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, and that's that's the whole concept of beyond barriers is that you've set you've put these barriers up in your mind and you can't see beyond them. You're just stuck in that echo chamber or that bubble. You you cannot see beyond it. And and the open mindedness that maybe brought you in in the first place, which is the process we use of the reverse osmosis to bring people back out. Uh, once you're in, you're stuck. You're you're just yeah. you're just duck in that echo chamber and and the open-mindedness is gone you're closed-minded now and and it's uh you have we have to be able to tap back into that humanity and to reach those people and get them back out and another thing go ahead when you realize that you got into this because you were afraid of something you're afraid of your life you're afraid of of everything about your life there's a certain point too where now you you realize that the fear you feel in the movement is greater than the fear you felt when you felt alone in society. You know, now I'm scared to question. Now I'm scared to get out. I'm I'm uh, scared of disobeying an order because I don't know if somebody's going to shoot me in the back. You know, and you kind of realize, you know, for me, the gay church was my slap in the face of reality. And something has to happen to you to kind of wake you up and go, Holy moly, this is not good. <laughs> you know, I got to start figuring out where I'm at, you know, and make some choices here. And and just just one wrong choice. I mean, you came so close to life altering altering your life for the forever. You know, and yeah. there's a lot. Of, a lot we all know. I mean, fr- from our time in the movement, we know people that made the wrong choices and it destroyed their lives, whether it was 40 years or life in prison or whether it was death. I mean, we, we know people that have, we've lost over the years. Um, it, it is just not, it's not a healthy thing for people to be involved in. It's, it's, uh, right. it's a, it's a, it's and a then thing. for us, you know, 10 months after the church, uh, situation, then we had gotten, had done so much illegal activity off the property in April of 1985, the FBI, was forced to come in on us. So we were found ourselves surrounded by 300 law enforcement officers uh, one day, and I became the negotiator between us and the government. The leader of our group sent me down there to stall so all the other guys could get ready for battle. I went down there to try to negotiate for a peaceful surrender because I didn't want people killed. So now in less than a year, I'm facing a situation where uh, not only could I be killed, but everybody I loved and held dear, my wife, my kids, my friends, everybody could get killed in a shootout. Because so the FBI made it very plain to me when we started negotiations that said they weren't going to fire the first shot. But if we fired a shot, uh, they had a UE helicopter around the corner. They had 50 caliber machine guns aimed, uh, aimed at us. And he made it very plain that once it starts in 30 seconds, every man, woman, child in the compound's going to be dead. And that was serious to me. And I knew he wasn't bluffing. You know, 300 cops there, and we were the first uh, group in the United States history to be surrounded by the FBI's hostage rescue team, uh, first domestic terrorist organization, even though that term wasn't prevalent in those days. But it was a serious situation. Uh, so 
you know, twice in a year, I'm facing the possibility of not making making it through this. Well, we ended up with a four-day armed standoff with the government, but fortunately, I was able to talk to the uh, leader of our group uh, into surrendering. See, and that's that's fascinating. This is history that a lot of people either don't know about or are not aware of. And so, so what Carrie was talking about is the CSA compound. You guys are surrounded by 300 federal agents and law enforcement, and there was a standoff. And how long did that? How long did that go on? That went on for four days. It started on April 19th, 1985, uh, when uh, Jim Browning surrendered on the 22nd. So we had the 19th, 20th, 21st, and the 22nd uh, on the standoff. Uh, so it was, you know. As the guy sit down to the, to negotiate, I didn't even know if I, if I was going to make it down to the wall in the hill before some cop decided just to shoot me right on the spot. Um, not easy having cops aim their guns at you. I can tell you, it's you know reality really wakes you up. And then once it was all over and our leader surrendered and all the guys surrendered and everything. Um, just a re huge relief you still there yep that last the last couple of, last couple oh. says we didn't hear <laughs> okay what did you hear last Okay, so what is it? Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I, I think I remember. It's a couple yeah. seconds. Okay, so yeah. Uh, so I was walking down uh, to an area that we call the valley. So it was about a quarter mile walk that I had to walk to start the negotiations. Knowing that there's cops all around me aiming their weapons at me because they didn't know if I was coming down with a bomb, you know, suicide bomber kind of situation. So I know if I make a wrong move at all, I'm dead, you know? So that's, uh, it's an awakening moment, you know, because you realize one false step, one false impression and my life is done. Uh, so I had to be very careful. Got down to the negotiation uh, spot uh, where all the, the main negotiator was with the FBI and started talking. You know, then I felt a little bit better, but it's until you've been there, it's difficult to imagine. It's easy when you know, you know, when you're in the movement, it's easy to feel bravado. You think, oh, well, I, the only way they're going to take my guns is my cold hands <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. You know, you, you see all these guys flaring up like peacocks, and you think, you know, that's easy to say, it's easy to. To picture yourself in that situation, and I know we did it at the at CSA, but walking down there and knowing I'm unarmed, but they don't know that they're hoping I'm unarmed. But if I make a wrong move, just my life's done, and it's, you're it's, you're not so quick to think that that you're invincible anymore. You realize this is beyond seriousness you know this is life and death and am i willing to not only give up my life but ruin the life of my wife and my children over this right 
and for the listeners, what was it? What was the defining moment as far as like what were the feds doing there? Why was the place surrounded, or what was the um, what was the, they, the feds had a warrant for Jim Ellison, who was the leader of our group, uh, for conspiracy to possess unlawful weapons, and uh, because we'd had people who used to be in our group who joined the order, uh, who was starting to get busted the year before us who had turned state's evidence. So they knew we had stuff that was illegal, pretty much knew where everything was from the informants at that point. Um, so they came to Jim, uh, or came to me and said, I've got a arrest warrant for Jim and he wouldn't surrender. So then we had the siege start off at that point. Uh, it was remarkable to me, to be honest, because uh, you know, again, stereotypes, all you hear about the cops coming is they're they're just going to kill everybody and blame it on us. You know, we shot first. They had no choice, that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. They made it very clear from the very beginning they were not there to kill people. They understood we had children there. They did not want children to die. They did not want women to die. He made it very clear to me that it would be us who shot the first shot, not them. But if we shot the first shot, then it's over with. They have no choice. Um, I found the leader of the uh, HRT to be a very honorable, uh, honorable man. We got along real well, and I uh, felt like I could trust him. Uh, they did, without going into huge detail, because it's pretty lengthy, but uh, they went beyond the call of duty, as far as I was concerned. We not only had a four-day standoff, uh, the ATF, and everybody searched our compound for four days after that, trying to, you know, for evidence. You know, on the cases that they were building. Uh, within a short period of time, we knew that the rest of us in some sort of leadership position would be arrested about, uh, about five weeks later uh, and that we'd be charged. So that did happen. I ended up spending uh, 26 months on a five-year sentence in prison, uh, giving me plenty of time to further sort things out in my head. And uh, it took a while. I mean, everything that that came to the group came through me basically because I was the propaganda guy. I was the Bible teacher. Um, I was the media spokesman, you know, being the negotiator. So it took me longer to get every all the hate and the stereotypes and the scriptures that we were taught, everything out of my head and out of my system before I started to feel right. Again, it took me about nine years to go through that process. It was uh, horrendous. Wow. Now, would you say, um, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was, was just no, going to ask. Question. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to ask because, um, I mean, in your situation, you had religious extremism on top of the, um, the far right, the racist, the racism mm -hmm. and everything else. Would you say for you that created even more of like a conflict as far as leaving? Because now you almost have to unlearn everything that you had thought you'd learned. Yes and no. Here's here's what happened after after the gay church thing. I decided I no longer wanted to be there. Uh, I was ready to leave CSA at that point. Uh, like I said before, uh, Jim and I had been having disagreements. Uh, for quite a long time. I wasn't happy there any longer. And so once we got back to the uh, to CSA from Kansas City, I was determined that I wanted to leave. Um, 
unfortunately for me, on the way down to while I was praying and saying, Lord, I'm ready to leave. I, I'm going to take Kay and my kids and we're going to pack up and go somewhere else. Uh, the word that I got was, no, you can't leave. So that put a huge amount of stress on me. It, I realized after the siege, uh, and I had prayed about this several times, I still got the same answer every time. And I realized after the siege that if I had left, there's a 99.99% chance they would have they shot it. Yep. Yeah. I, I was, the FBI later on testified that I was the only voice of reason in the group. Uh, wow. You know, so that, uh, realizing that if I had left, uh, all of my friends would have been killed, more than likely. So uh, going to prison was not easy. Uh, I'm sure. Sorting everything out of my head was not easy. And for quite a while, to be honest, I was uh, kind of angry about it with God, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can remember kind of screaming and hollering at God one day and saying, you know, why why did I have to go through this? You know, this it's not right. Uh, I just wanted to leave and put my life back together. And he, and I felt like the Lord just spoke to me and just said, okay, let's say that you, I would have let you leave. Uh, who is there in the group that you didn't, wouldn't have minded dying in a shootout? And okay, I get it. Right, <laughs> it's, right. You know, I didn't want anybody dying. So, you know, going to prison for 26 months um, is an easy price to pay if you realize the lives that you saved and, and the good that you could do afterwards. Right. And if I can keep people from making the same mistake or worse, uh, and I know I knew people that were in the order that never got out of prison before they died and still are in prison to this day. Breaks my heart, you know, because I know that they just listened to people they should not have listened to. I knew men in the order who had a good heart and just listened to the wrong propaganda, pushed a little too far by the leadership who didn't want to get their own hands dirty, but manipulated others into it. And it's too late for them. They'll never go. That's incredible. Um, This this, uh, story, tonight's tonight's episode should serve as a lesson to anyone that's in the movement about how quickly one bad decision can could alter your life or could or could cost people lives and and uh, I, I think it's it's incredible uh, the trajectory and and what all took place Carrie and that um, you know that you were able to in the, in this case maybe save maybe save quite a few lives in, in the process you know and um, um, in your own process and when you were de-radicalizing and, and getting out and, and, um, and the work that you do now speaking out. Uh, the question I had for you was, um, you had mentioned earlier in the program about um, the federal building in, in um, Oklahoma City. And yeah. I, I know, uh, but I'd like you to tell us about a little bit about it, but I know that uh, from history and all that, that Tim McVeigh had went through uh, CSA or, or was allegedly connected to it in some ways. And then he went on to uh, blow up the, the federal built that exact same federal building. What, uh, is there any connection or anything about that that you would want to talk well, about? Well, he never was connected with CSA. Uh, he okay. never had been to the, to the group, uh, what we call the farm. He'd never been to the farm at all. Uh, 
to my knowledge, and I'm pretty sure I would know. Uh, there is the, a report when all this was done that he had visited or at least had called a group that we were associated with, Bellingham City, uh, before the bombing. The only connection between uh, McVeigh and us was, of course, we were raided on April 19th. That's when the siege started. April 19th, eight years later, is when the branch division fire occurred. And we know McVeigh was there and he got angry over that. Two years after that, you had Wayne Snell, Richard Wayne Snell, was executed at nine o'clock at night on April 19th of 95, uh, the same day as the Oklahoma City bombing. So Snell was a quasi-member of our group, never lived with us, but visited several times and sort of an honorary member kind of thing. Um, so there's a connection there uh, and the fact that we were the ones who originally planned to bomb that particular building and from McVeigh to pick that same building had to be more than a coincidence to me. We know that he followed the Turner Diaries and of course, in the Turner Diaries, it was the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. that got bombed. It was not the Murrah building because that's just a small uh, federal building in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. You know, why well, pick that particular one? It had to have some significance. And as y'all know, any kind of terrorism, whether it's domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism, symbols mean a lot. Mm-hmm. So picking that particular building had to symbolize something. Um, FBI couldn't prove anything. Uh, McVeigh, of course, never talked. But from my point of view, the only reason for him to have done that particular building was as a go-away present for Wayne Snell. Uh, and just saying, you know, nine or 12 hours after I do this, you know, you're going to be executed. But I wanted you to know that it's done. You know? And there's records that stated from prison that uh, Snell had told a guard uh, either, I think it was that morning that something's going to happen today. You know, and I just want to make sure I can see the news as much as possible. Um, so there, has, there for me, there's got to be a connection. Uh, and it kind of hurts, to be honest, that uh, uh, for if, if that connection is there, as I've always suspected, uh, that we had a, at least a small part in that. Hmm. So Elohim City was not is not the same thing as uh is the CSA is that two different was that two different groups two or? different groups there uh, Elohim City was in Oklahoma it still is <coughs> excuse me uh, we met uh, Elohim City in 1982 they were a nonviolent uh, Christian community also like but they've been around longer than us uh, they were not militant at all. Uh, when we first met them. So um, two different groups. We were, they were the closest group that we had come in contact with this on a spiritual level to us. Uh, but in terms, they believed in Christian identity, but they didn't associate really with Aryan nations or the Klan or anybody like that. If people came around, they'd welcome them, but they really sort of didn't align themselves to those kinds of groups per se. Mm. So since since you've been out, um, when did you start speaking out? And, and I know you've written a book or or a couple of books. Please tell us about that and and where people can get them. I finished my sentence in 1990. I got out of I got out of prison uh, uh, into July 1987. I wasn't allowed to speak out against anything while I was still on paper, I'll put 
probation or uh, parole. Um, so until I finished my sentence in 1990, I couldn't do anything. 1991, I joined an organization called Toastmasters, which is a public speaking organization. And it gave me the chance to speak out uh, for the first time about my experiences. I was with the organization for 10 years. Probably 90% of the speeches I gave had to do with my past. That was, for me, very significant because that was a major healing process for me. Um, Toastmasters is well known. All they do is critique your speeches. They don't judge the content whatsoever. So uh, I was never frowned upon for anything I talked about. Um, and they welcomed me with open arms even from the first day that I was there. First speech I gave I was about CSA in my past. So they were very welcoming. So that I told them later on uh, that they were my psychological savior uh, for allowing me to do that because it, it was significant. Um, so that was all the 90s. Uh, 95, I touched base with the man, the FBI agent who had been the uh, head of the HRT and who was the negotiator for the FBI. Uh, we crossed paths again in 95. Uh, ended up becoming really good friends. Uh, he took me to Washington. We did a debriefing there at the, for the FBI. They wanted to, to basically know uh, what they did wrong at uh, uh, at Waco and Ruby Ridge and what and what they did right for us and uh, wanted some pointers. So we talked about that and I started doing speaking engagements after that for the, uh, the terrorist or, uh, conferences against terrorism, civil rights organizations, that kind of thing, and that helped. And then. Wrote the book, uh, Tabernacle of Hate, uh, Seduction into Right-Wing Extremism, came out in 1998, um, about, um, you know, the whole story behind CSA. Now, um, where can people get that? Is the book still published? Is it still available where they can? Uh, it is still it? available. Uh, they can go to Amazon.com. Uh, they can just type in my name or they can type in uh, Tabernacle of Hate. Find it. It's got it. They'll see two covers, a black cover and a red cover. The red cover is the current one. It's the second edition. Uh, Syracuse University Press published it. Uh, I think they did an excellent job putting it together. It's got two, in addition to the, the material from the original book, uh, it's got some updated material, of course, but it also includes two of the propaganda booklets that I produced while I was still at CSA called uh, Prepare War and witchcraft and the Illuminati. So uh, people who have come out of the movement, uh, or even those who are still in, can have a better perspective of the kind of stuff that we wrote and then that I came against later on. I do. I would like to mention one thing. You mentioned earlier about the number of people that might have gotten saved and everything uh, because of what I did and all that, which is important. Uh, equally, if not more important, is the fact that Without a doubt in my mind, going into that gay church, uh, that gay con congregation uh, saved me, you know, by their actions. Um, if it was, if, if they were even close to the stereotype that I had programmed to believe, that might have been a different situation. But 
unrealizing from their point of view what they did in their worshiping God, you know, is what saved me. And then the FBI, when they came in, the way they handled themselves, the professionalism, um, after the four-day standoff, like I said, they had a, had a, had a four-day search of the property to find, to find evidence. And I would always say it when I did the terrorist uh, conferences uh, that the feds left the place better looking than it was when they got there. You know, I mean, they, they fed the animals. They cleaned the property. I mean, that saved me, you know, because it made me even more solidified in, in my new belief system that the government was not out to get me or to get my friends. It could have been way worse for us. I mean, the, the federal prosecutor, and I think the federal judge, which was two of the guys that we had targeted for assassination, uh, I think took mercy on us. The FBI agent that we uh, had targeted uh, became a friend of the group, helped a lot of the women after the men were arrested, uh, helped some of the other men who weren't arrested to find jobs. I mean, they just went beyond the call of duty. Um, so that helped to save me. And then Toastmasters with what they did helped to save me. So it's a two-way street. It's not, you know, when you come out and move, and y'all know this, it's not just how you can affect people's lives, but it's how they affect your life, too. It's, uh, Absolutely. That, that's a you know, whole story itself, of course, but it's it's true. We, we're appreciative. If, you, if we've come out of that movement, we are appreciative of the people that helped us to come out of it. Oh, you, you are not kidding, sir. <laughs> I mean, that is that is really well said. And I, I, I'm so thankful that you covered that because that's something what I'm hearing is it was empathy. It was compassion. And it's a two way street, just just like you said. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's given it's received. It's if everyone operated in this way in society, I don't think we'd have any wars. We wouldn't have racism. Yeah. We wouldn't have hate. Everything would be just, just phenomenal. And after I mean, a lot, after I finished uh, my, my sentence, I was able to start speaking out One of the first things I did was to call the anti-defamation league out of PC and apologize for my actions and the actions of our group. Uh, they got me in touch with, uh, the director over here at Dallas, uh, invited me over there and I didn't know what to expect, honestly. Uh, I was a little nervous about going over there, but the director there was so welcoming, answered any questions I had, gave me some books to read because, you know, I was still trying to sort stuff out. Uh, so even, you know, the organizations, just like the gays or whoever, the government, but even organizations that I feared, uh, what would they do? Again, welcomed their arms, and, and uh, I did a lot of speaking engagements for them. Um, but it's just like you said, it is a two-way street, and you need that when you come out of the movement. You can't do it by yourself. You you got to have help. That's that's why we started Beyond Barriers. I mean, that's that's the goal here is to is Absolutely. to help people. I, I know when I first got out, I was still I, I was done with the racism, but I was still struggling with the anti-Semitism and the Jewish community, the Simon Wiesenthal Center in specific reached out to me and and they were uh, Rick Eaton, my friend from the Wiesenthal Center. He was on a plane within a day or two, I think it was, and, and came right out and, and uh, wow. uh, 
it was it was incredible um the that and and i i, I felt the same way you know going and, and meeting with with jewish people and, yeah. and the first first uh trip to a synagogue and all that um there was a lot of uh, that those old ideas going oh no yeah. are they gonna what are they gonna do to me when i go in there you know like uh, yeah it was it was uh it was life-changing and that's that's what I think is so is so important and what a lot of people should need to take away from this uh, from Carrie's story too is is the way you were treated when you when you went there to the gay church and and how people um, how you were received you know like yeah. it that altered altered this path the path could have been completely different I mean you think about these things like somebody walks off a sidewalk and gets hit by a bus like well if they didn't step off the sidewalk you know, then they would have been fine and lived their whole life. You know, I mean, this is one of those, one of those um, stories that, that just could have went so many different ways. And I mean, we're so proud of you that you're, that you're out and, and you, you're such a wonderful example of change and, and uh, it's, it's incredible. And, and that's what we want to boost on, on this show is we, we try to bring on uh, stories of change and, and compassion and empathy and, and um, and we're trying to change lives and save lives. And uh, you know, your your story, I think, is is absolutely incredible, and people really need to learn from it. I think too the one of the main lessons I learned in the movement, you're taught who to hate, you know, and it, of course it's everybody, you know, to hate. So and they're the enemy. It doesn't matter what group, what organization, it's, you know, they're the enemy of their enemy. You find out once you've left the movement, there are no enemies. You know, the only enemy is up here in your mind. You know, that's where you got into trouble to start with because you aren't taking personal responsibility for the problems that you were having in your own life. That's your enemy. You know, uh, correct your own thinking, uh, correct your actions to where you can have a better life and quit blaming everybody else for you know your own shortcomings and and reach out because you'll find that the same people that you're having troubles with are more than happy to help you yeah if you're just if you'll ask for the help they're more than happy to help you so you can turn your life around very easily if you really just want to and quit blaming everybody else because they're not the enemy that's it that's it in a nutshell right exactly. there is if you gotta introspect you gotta you gotta look down deep inside and yeah. and that's one of those things i think we didn't maybe at least i didn't realize it when i was in the movement that it was so fear-based we were afraid of this we were afraid of that nobody yeah. ever admit to being afraid of anything but really that's what it was is we 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 didn't understand these things we didn't understand uh these other people and we we've fell in you know uh judge them on stereotypes which weren't even accurate and uh, that's what's so um incredible is when you give yourself a chance to learn and explore these things a lot of it isn't isn't anything what you've been told so it's it's about being open-minded and and uh you know considering uh was a confucius said uh, a wise man considers the possibility of anything i used to say that right. when i was in the movement but i wasn't considering those other things you know until, until later you know it's yeah. like you let that stuff sink in and and um so is do you have any uh any uh final words or, or final uh thoughts on on what what can what can we all do to uh get along better and and uh, make a difference in the world you know, I was speaking with a reporter the other day and I was telling him about everything in life is in cycles. You know, uh, 
scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. What happened before happens now. What's happening now has happened before kind of thing. And what's happening now is so much like a mirror of the 70s and 80s, uh, except amplified. You know, of course, in, in my day, we didn't have the Internet. So you didn't have a way of talking to other people. Uh, but we, we did what a lot of people are doing now and shutting out everything except the negative. Uh, we did that. We quit reading papers. We quit watching the news. Put TV all together. All we heard was the right wing stuff coming from other right wing groups, you know, so garbage in, garbage out. So the big message for me today is uh, really look for, especially pe uh, people who are holding on to QAnon, uh, really look at what they're saying and think of how possible this really is. I can remember that towards the end of uh, CSA, one one of the things that really started me kind of question stuff was there was a teaching in those days that said one Jew controlled the eastern half of the planet and another Jew controlled the western half of the planet. You heard that one? So uh, so two Jews controlled the whole planet. They manipulated everything, right? And I finally got to the point of saying, well, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, if these if these two guys are that smart, then they deserve to rule the planet because none of us are that smart, you know. Uh, and, I, and I started realizing how idiotic that that teaching was. And if that teaching was idiotic, what else am I being taught that's wrong? So people that are listening to the QAnon need to listen to another side also. Need to ask yourself how feasible is this? Is it really feasible that Donald Trump is going to all of a sudden become president on March 4th? I mean, come on. You know, you've got to think about these kinds of things because if you continue again to believe them, what road are you going to go down? You know, how much do they really make sense? And just questioning little things can, can change your life uh, very quickly for the better if you'll start questioning. Exactly. For sure. You know, I remember being in, in the 90s, uh, stay, I was out at Aryan Nations for, I, I think it was a month or so. And I remember attending a militia meeting up in Sandpoint, Idaho, a little bit north of uh, Hayden, where the compound was. And the, a lot of the stuff that was coming from the militia, and back then, it was so easy to to debunk some of it because they were like, well, the Chinese are going to invade or the Russians are going to invade and they'd have an actual date for it. Like it would be like March 7th or, or something like that. And like the days would, would go, would come and go. And a lot of times it was in 10 days, this is going to happen. And you're like, Oh man, Oh, really on edge for 10 days. And then it, it, it passes and, and it's like, wow, that was stupid. Why did I think that, you know? And, and for me, that didn't, it, it, it registered like, okay, I'm staying away from the militia because these guys are kooks. They're, they're saying that these things are going to happen and it, and it never does. But I still stayed in the movement, you know, because there yeah. wasn't, the conspiracy theories weren't quite that wild where they were actually giving dates and stuff like that, where the militia theories at that time anyways, were so easily debunked. And, uh, but like what you said, I mean, People need to question these things, and even even the things that are um, that are seemingly not as uh, full of holes, or the theories that are not not as full of holes. You still got to question it. You still got to consider the other possibilities. 
and you've Absolutely. you've got to look. I just posted a thing today that, that talked on Twitter about you've got to look at the situation of just like the if you're in the if you're in the movement, you've got this path that you're going to look at. Am I do I am I willing to die or go to prison? Nationally, or do you want to continue down this path and really uh, divide the country? Do you really want war? I saw one article today that a conservative was saying that we want the Armageddon. No, you don't. You have no idea what Armageddon is. You have no idea what war in this country can do to people. You know, you're complaining about a snowstorm right now, maybe not having electricity. Guess what? That's nothing compared to what you're saying that you want in this country. You know, so exactly. people need to wake up and say, is that what I really want? Uh, you know, do I want war in the United States of America? And to the to the possibility of even nuclear war, and you got to be an idiot to want that. You know, wake up. And the only reason the evangelicals are pushing that agenda is because they think they're going to get raptured out of it beforehand. You know, wake up. There is no such thing as the rapture. Wake up. You're being lied to by your preachers also, you know, as well as these manipulators that are trying to stir up trouble. You don't need that. We don't need Armageddon in the United States. Do we want to be like Israel or a Palestinian nation that just has war all the time? You know, right. watching your children die, you know, famine and diseases, golden rampant. Is that really what you want? Or you want it because you think you're going to escape ahead of time, which is a cowardly thing to, to say that you want because you're not going to be there. You know? Right. So wake up to your preachers also and hold them accountable, as well as the politicians that lie to you, as well as the leaders in the movement that are lying to you. Exactly. Could not have said it better. <laughs> so true. So true. I just want to thank you very much for coming on. And I'm sure we'll have you on again because there's so much that we could discuss and you have so much wisdom to let people know. Like, you know, it's just I'm very, very thankful that, you know, one, you're not a part of that life anymore. And two, like you yep. said, you know, your purpose was fulfilled by staying because you were able to save lives by staying. And I'm sure that wasn't easy. And I'm sure going to prison sure as heck was not pleasant at all. But I'm thank you that you're here now to be able to tell that very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you.